it's very likely that at the course of the day today, I will do roughly 18 minutes of work coaching multiple clients around the world on very serious, very deep, important issues. Uh, and I'm not going to do that between 3.30 and 4. I will do that throughout the day as it becomes necessary, as I need to. And that is how my work is integrated with my life. Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger and curiosity for optimizing business performance, exploring corporate culture, customer addiction, and building high-performing teams. It's full of advice from my guests, entrepreneurs, fellow business authors, and examples from some of my work over the last few years, coaching the CEOs and leadership teams of some amazingly successful tech firms. The Melting Pot is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way, to help you build a highly scalable business and realize the potential of your life's work. If you enjoy the episode, head over to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast to find today's show notes and more editions of The Melting Pot. While you're there, if you subscribe to the newsletter, you can pick up a copy of my new book, Plan B, How to Scale Your Technology Business Faster and Achieve Plan A. Enjoy. Hello. Today I'm talking with and learning from Ari Marcel. Ari was 23, thought he knew it all, wasn't open to criticism, wasn't open to feedback, was working really hard, working 18 hours a day, working in construction, working in property development, $3 million in debt, and then his world came to a shuddering halt. He was diagnosed with Crohn's and found himself in a position where he could only work an hour a day. So he had to come up with a system to allow him to keep moving forward. And he did. And what he now does is he now coaches entrepreneurs, CEOs, really around replaceability. He sees... It's not that you would then do nothing useful with your time, but you would, he says, look, work-life balance is bullshit. It's do less, live more is his mantra. And so we dig into some of the things that he did himself, some of the things he thinks people should do, the challenges he sees along the way. We have a fantastic conversation. I enjoyed it. I'm sure you will too. Hey, my name is Ari Mizell. I am currently in Princeton, New Jersey, although I am from New York City originally, and I help make entrepreneurs more replaceable. Why did you end up coming up with this as your purpose, life's work? Yeah, it really has been that uh, in, in many ways. So the, I'll try to give a short answer and we can dig into it as much as you want. But basically, uh, when I got out of college, I was working in a construction and real estate development, really sort of hard hard lifestyle, stressful, a lot of work. And I got diagnosed with a chronic illness called Crohn's disease, which is no longer a part of my life. But one of the main factors that I had to deal with there was I went from working these sort of 18 hour days to working an hour a day at best if I could, just based on energy and uh, feeling up to it. And still had to get all the things done and was dealing with a lot of overwhelm, a lot of stress. So I created a new system of productivity that I didn't believe I didn't believe there was a system out there that really served what I needed to get done and how I needed to get it done. So I created a new one, which was called less doing as in less doing more living. And 
that grew into a much bigger system over time and eventually sort of developed into a business-focused methodology, which I call the replaceable founder. And the sort of impetus for that in some ways was in college, I had one professor who would always say this line, which was, you never want to be irreplaceable because if you can't be replaced, you can't be promoted. And I always saw the idea of being irreplaceable as uh, a big stock. And so the idea here is not to replace yourself, not to become replaced, but if you become more replaceable, that means that you need to create systems, processes, you need to delegate, you need to offload the things that many of us tend to just hoard and hold on to in order to be able to move on and do bigger and better things. Um, so the focus is on making everybody in the organization, not just the founder, uh, as replaceable as possible. And that endeavor, that goal is one that doesn't really have an end to it, but has this really interesting trickle down effect into all sorts of different things that we do in business and life. I find that that, that philosophy really helps because a lot of people, they get promoted into a management slot because they're good at the work that the team does and nobody's told them what the job of management is. So they believe their job is to get the team over the line somehow rather than make themselves, make themselves redundant, you know, like bringing people on. And, and, and often I tell that to people and it's, it is like a light switch has been turned on. It's like, how come nobody told me this? I've been struggling with this wrong expectation. And so, you know, you, you know, you ended up getting Crohn's disease and that became, you know, you couldn't do more than an hour a day. Why do you think people feel that? Is it a sense of is some sort of Protestant work ethic? Is it, is cultural norm? Is it, you know, what would we do if we didn't, if we weren't working? Uh, it's all those things. It really is all those things. So just one thing to touch on with what you just said about the promoting the manager. Have you ever heard of the Peter Principle? Yeah, 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 totally. Right. So the Peter Principle basically says, it's sort of a joke, but it says that people get promoted to the point of obsolescence, right? Because your promotion to the next level is based on your work at the current level. It's, it's, it's an interesting and funny and sadly true thing that happens. But uh, yeah, so I think that there is a really, really big cultural issue for the, for, for one thing. I mean, people have their own demons might be a little bit strong word, but they have all sorts of things inside them that motivate them to be more or less productive to procrastinate or not. All of these things have some sort of psychological and emotional basis for the most part. They're not actually based on the real work that you have to get done. But um, yeah, unfortunately we do have this really, I'm not gonna say weird, but unfortunate cultural issue about working more rather than working smarter. Uh, and it's pervasive in all sorts of industries. And, you know, you see, it used to be this kind of, I think, joke in some ways, like in the finance industry, you know, Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, those were the people who were like living at their desks and, you know, working 150 hour weeks and all that kind of stuff. But it, it, it's really everywhere in startup culture and all sorts of things where people equate working more with being more productive and being more effective. And what we've found now, what I think is one of the most fascinating things in terms of work that we've seen with the pandemic is there is now this movement called the overemployed movement. Uh, it's a community, I guess, in some ways. 
And what you have now is because you have these people working from home and some of them are doing it for the first time ever, you have some very clever people who are who have been working two and sometimes three full-time jobs with three different companies and uh, you know making triple their earning potential in the same 40-hour work week because they're able to manage it properly. And the thing is, is that we know from really good data for years now that the average 40-hour worker, 40-hour week worker, does roughly 12 hours of actual productive work in a week. So it's not that crazy to think of somebody doing that. But I, I think it's amazing. So average, right? That, you, that was the, the average worker. And, you know, if you look at uh, Gallup's work on Engaged, you know, it's a, I think, 12%, 15%. Uh, I often talk to clients about A players, top 10% of available talent for a given job in a given location. And the, the averages are, you know, those top performers could be 5x or 10x, 100x, 300%, 300 times more productive than the average. And so it's your system, does it, you've got to be motivated like anything. Look, the world is full of diet books and fitness books, and there's still some people who wish they were thinner and wish they were fitter, right? So how how do you get into the motivation to do it versus the, you know, we just, you know, so for some people it's a, it's a, it's a black box. They don't even know they, they could change the way they do what they do. And then somebody turns the light switch on, but then there has to be, there's some motivation. Where does that come from? So not surprisingly, it's a fairly complex topic, but there is, some sort of clear connect the dot pathway issues there that you can look at. The first thing in terms of motivation, I would say is that a lot of people have a really big disconnect between what they want or what they think they want and what they actually need or what they actually want. Um, and we know this also from tons of data research, a lot of it based on marketing and things in terms of the things that people think they want a really good way of illustrating this. One of my favorite ways of sort of illustrating that issue is that if you ask the average American uh, what kind of coffee they like, the average American will tell you that they like a like a rich, hearty, dark roast blend, whatever, single, all that kind of stuff. Uh, but in actuality, when you look at what most Americans actually drink, it is sweet, milky, wheat, weak coffee, right? Uh, and that's what they actually want to drink. But in their minds, it's like, no, I want that rich, hearty roast. It's like, you know, you get an American who goes to Europe for the first time in their life and has an espresso and they almost <laughs> die because it's a right? Uh, and so that's like, to me, that's like so quintessential in terms of what we're talking about here, right? Because then what happens is you have people who think like, well, I want more money or I want to get a bigger house or, and, and they may have legitimate reasons for that, right? Like we have a growing family and need a bigger house. Uh, but those are, and, and, and it's never sort of satisfying. They can never really get there and they always feel overwhelmed because that's not actually what they end up wanting. What most people, in my experience, really, really want at their core, but it's not sexy or interesting sounding or something that seems tangible, is control over their own time. Ultimately, that's what I think people really, really want. And there's a lot of factors that would be required to come into play for you to be able to do that, obviously. But ultimately, I think that's what a lot of people end up really wanting. Um, so there's that huge disconnect. So the very first thing is to have some sort of awareness of self-awareness of how you're actually spending your time, the activities that you're doing that are leading to 
the other activities are leading to the increase in the bank account, more time, whatever it might be, and the correlations. But unfortunately, people just get overwhelmed. And then they get into this sort of state of overwhelm where we accept it because the human mind and body can take a lot, right? We've seen that many times throughout history. We can get used to a lot. And when you get used to it, you stop looking for a better way, right? You just keep digging rather than thinking, well, maybe I should get out of this trench and go that way. I mean, there's some neuroscience that says brain plasticity sort of stops age 25. And one way to counteract that is to keep learning. But there are lots. I mean, if you take your average, again, lots of people, you know, they've stopped learning. So they just sort of, as you say, they're on that, they're on a treadmill and they're just plodding along with no sense of where they're going and what gives them, what would actually give them satisfaction. There was Nick Marks, who's been on the podcast a couple of times, uh, has got a business, a startup called Friday Pulse, which measures employee happiness. And and one of the one of the observations he had last year through the pandemic for CEOs was, look, stop asking your staff if they want to come back to the office. Because human beings are unable to tell you how they will feel about a future thing. They will absolutely tell you how they will feel. The thing is, they'll be completely wrong, which is a bit like your example with the coffee. Tell me what type of coffee you like. Or even, you know, the whole thing with the Pepsi challenge, you know, you get them in Times Square, you get them to taste cola, they all pick Pepsi, then they go to Costco and buy a slab of cola, right? There's, there's, there's a difference between how we say we're going to feel or how we say we're going to act and then the reality. How do you get people to wake up to that? <laughs> Because I'm just thinking, you know, sitting in your chair, uh, you know, on your mission to um, save humanity from overwork. If you can get more people to wake up, then you've got a system that people can deploy. Yeah, well, and and I think, at least for me, like that's that's what I've been doing for the last 10, 11 years now, I guess, with my courses and the books and, and, and my coaching that I do. And it's... It's always different for everybody, especially when it comes to like the coaching aspect when I'm working one-on-one with somebody. There are the people who really need that slap in the head. Uh, they're the people who need to have a little hand-holding. And most, more often than not, people need to see that there's another way. And I think that that's the biggest one that really sort of opens people's eyes is that, you know, you don't know what you don't know, right? And overwhelm is really good at making you not know other things, right? There's, I always like to say, you can't read the label from inside the jar. Um, and so all these people are sort of in that jar and this is what they know. And it's like the goldfish, right? In the way in the bowl that doesn't know that there's other things out there. So sometimes you're able to show people like, this is, this is how I work. This is what it's possible. This is how the people that I coach work and, you know, on mass, like there is another way of doing this. There are people in your situation with, you know, multiple kids, with bills to pay, with two jobs and a company, all these things that are doing it, you know, and that doesn't mean that people should feel bad. Like, Oh, I'm not doing it right. It's just that they haven't been shown the way. If you haven't been given the tools for it, sometimes it's very hard to figure out how to get things done. And where do you sit on, work-life balance where people actually enjoy doing the thing that they enjoy, right? Because I can absolutely see you do, You want to spend as little time possible doing a thing unless it gives you joy. The idea of work-life balance is total uh, 
BS to me. Sorry. I don't know if it's explicit podcast or not. Say whatever you like. Okay, it's total bullshit. It's just a complete bullshit concept that people tell themselves that they want to find work-life balance. And uh, to me, it's more about a work-life integration, which is a very key and important difference. So first of all, balance as a concept is fleeting, right? Like if you think about what balance is, we are constantly in and out of balance, right? And there's a really great contemporary philosopher named Alain de Botton who says that anything that is worth pursuing will take us out of balance, which is absolutely true. And as I sit here with you right now, there are people going back and forth in the hallway because we're renovating our bathroom in our house. And the house is going to be a total mess for the next week. And it's going to be stressful. And it's going to be annoying. We have four small children. It's going to be a pain in the butt. We have dogs and cats. Like it's, it's a terrible situation in which to do a renovation. But sometimes you have to make a mess to make things better. So this idea, and so people get like scared of this idea of like things being hard or things being difficult for a while and knowing that you have to sort of dip into that, come out of it. And then furthermore, this idea of balance for a lot of people is like, well, I turn my phone off at five o'clock in the evening. It's like, yeah, but then you're thinking about it all night until 11 o'clock and you're not really present with your family and you're stressed out. And then you wake up at three in the morning and check your phone. Like it's, and, and anybody who tells you that that's not true is lying to you and lying to themselves more importantly. So the idea of work-life integration is not that you necessarily have to separate the two. Right? It's that you can manage them effectively. So, for example, email is the number one productivity stressor for most people around the world. Whenever I love to ask people, what's your biggest productivity challenge? Email is one that comes up. And the reason for that is that email is not an e the email problem is not an email problem. It is a decision-making problem. But you have all these people who are like, oh, I, you know, I check my email twice a day. Or uh, they have those autoresponders that say the same thing, like, I check my email once a day if it's important. It's like that. It's total bullshit. Almost every time, it's completely. It, and, and also, it's sweeping the dirt under the rug, right? It's not actually addressing the issue. It's just saying I'm not going to deal with this right now. I'll I'll take my stress in the Big Mac format, you know, at four o'clock rather than having like a bite of it now. Um, so, a lot of times when I'm on a podcast, something people are like, "Well, you know, how often do you check your email?" It's probably sixty times a day. Um, and the reason is that email is not a stress source for me because I actually have an effective system of communication. And when I get an email, I can deal with it effectively in a matter of seconds. And if I do that while I'm at my son's soccer game, that's okay because it's not me taking away. I can take five seconds, literally five seconds to answer something, which means that somebody else gets to continue doing their work and doesn't create a further delay for later that I actually have to deal with. And I don't have to be sitting there being like, well, Oh, did you make that go? Oh, what's that? You know, it, and it pulls me in different places because the attention doesn't need to be there because the issue has been dealt with. The idea of like, I'll deal with it later, I'll get to it later, is just shooting yourself in the foot. And everybody does that all the time. Um, so the, again, the work-life integration aspect is, I'll, I'll try to, I, I, I'll try to make this a, a, a fairly short uh, example. So I do coaching. Right. And I've always I've done coaching for years and uh, I did masterminds and one on one. And right now, I my main thing, I have courses, up, but my main thing is my coaching. And I currently have 26 uh, private clients one on one. And this meeting that you and I are having is the only real time synchronous conversation that is on my calendar for this entire week. Um, I use a tool called Voxer, which is a voice communication app that is asynchronous. My clients have unlimited 
boxer access to me. And it's very likely that at the course of the day today, I will do roughly 18 minutes of work coaching multiple clients around the world on very serious, very deep, important issues. Uh, and I'm not going to do that between 3.30 and 4. I will do that throughout the day as it becomes necessary, as I need to. And that is how my work is integrated with my life. And that is how I'm able to get up and make my kids breakfast and get them to school and then pick them up from school and then be a volunteer EMT 100 hours a month and do woodworking in my workshop outside and still run a company or run a business and provide and do all the things I love to do. And your contention is that anybody could work like this? Yeah, I mean, like somebody who's stocking shelves at a Walmart might have a little trouble doing this, but that doesn't mean that they can't progress to something else at some point. And I have worked with every level of worker in every industry I can even think of. But yes, on mass, I would say that not only do I think it is, I mean, I've, I've made this possible for well over a thousand people at this point. Which ones are you most proud of? Which I and maybe maybe it's individuals. Don't know. Maybe it's the types of jobs or the transitions that you've been able to enable. Uh, so obviously, I can't like name names of people or companies, but I think that some of the most gratifying ones for me are ultimately want to get people to think differently. I know that sounds very vague, but. It's funny because for a long time, I always had, when we were trying to work on marketing and stuff for, for my business, when we were doing that, which is not really a focus at this point for me, it was always really hard to sort of come up with what like the unique selling proposition and the value and stuff, right? Because the truth is, is that over the years, you know, people who've worked with me have multiplied, have you know, created multiple uh, 10x, whatever you want to call it, 20x in, in their revenue. Uh, they've expanded new locations. They've started families. They have uh, ended bad partnerships. Like all of these things that I think are very positive have happened, but I could never meet somebody at a party and be like, this is what I can help you do. So that's where the replaceability thing sort of came out. And I, I always say that, you know, if you want to, if you want to understand how successful people operate, don't do what they do, try to understand how they think. Uh, and so when I can get clients and it's the degree at which I'm able to do this varies. The, the, the difficulty, the degree of difficulty in which this happens is very uh, variable. But when you can get somebody to think differently and they recognize that and they, they tell me that, that to me is extremely rewarding. Where somebody says, like, I was in this situation today, I've been here before, uh, but this is how I handled it this time because I thought, why don't we do it this way? Or maybe there's a different way. And uh, those are some of the most exciting ones for me, honestly. And that's not linked to the financial gain. That's linked to the emotional change in the people that you're coaching. So you measure, you might, you might have to generate revenue change for somebody because they're paying you to coach them, but actually you get the joy from a different part of the process. Yeah. I tend to have a very different view on like everything. I don't know if that's a like a miswiring in my brain. <laughs> just sort of, I always tend to see things in a, a slightly different angle, not necessarily a better one, but just a different one. And uh, the revenue one is always an interesting one for me because, yeah, especially with the men that I coach, you, you see this less often with women. 
Uh, many of them don't really know how much money they actually need to operate in their life and to, you know, be able to buy presents for their kids and buy a new car if they want one and renovate a bathroom, you know? And so because of that, a lot of them just think more. And a lot of them are acting out of boredom many times, right? Entrepreneurs particularly have so much trouble sort of being with themselves, right? And not having something to work on or, or do or fix or boss around or whatever. And so they make trouble a lot of times. Well, they're definitely not the people who write the rule book often or follow the rule book. So how do you get them to follow a rule book? You know, because if then if they're not creating trouble, as you say, that, you know, does that, cause you don't in that regard, then are you, are you the, you're not the entrepreneur you've d just described? I was, I, I certainly was. Uh, so, so here, here, a very common thing that sort of comes up is that, you know, entrepreneurs are idea people, right? And they have the shiny object and all that stuff. But also, legitimately, an entrepreneur, a good entrepreneur, or a successful entrepreneur, an innovative entrepreneur can often figure, take something. It, I, it's a very old expression. I can't remember where it was from. Like, but uh, where most people see problems, entrepreneurs see opportunities, right? Which is great. The problem is that, you know, I'll get a client and be like, hey, you know, we were at this place today and they had this... Um, you know, they were selling this product in some local market. This product would be so great. And I thought, oh, I could, you know, get this manufacturer in China and I could put it on here and put it in. And it's like, whoa, 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 slow down. <laughs> Why are you doing that? You know, why? Just because you can doesn't mean you should. Right. Um, <laughs> there's a very stupid 90s movie called Harold and Kumar Go to White Castle. And uh, there was a kid who was like very... He really knew his stuff in terms of medicine or medical school, but he didn't want to go to medical school. And they were kind of like, why? Why didn't you know, like, you're so good at this. And he's like, look, just because you're hung like a moose doesn't mean you need to do porn. <laughs> um, and uh, so I say that I actually say that to clients quite often. Right. It's like just because you can doesn't mean you should. And a lot of times it's like, well, entrepreneurs particularly it's like, well, I can do this. Like, why wouldn't I do this? And then they spend the next, you know, six hours or even worse, if they have a team, those are the entrepreneurs who are like, oh, I have a great idea. I'm going to ruminate on this for 10 minutes. And then I'm going to go tell my team like, hey, we're changing the company, guys. Let's do this now. And the team freaks out. You lose half your team. Um, and it creates stress. And that 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 divide between the entrepreneur and the entrepreneur. Sorry. The, there's so much work that I do that is protecting the entrepreneur's <laughs> team from the entrepreneur's <laughs> mind. And what do you do then? You put a, What do you put in between the entrepreneur and their team? Communication. The, the first like main focus of my whole system Placeable founder is on communication, and the the biggest the biggest thing in that particular example, and the and with entrepreneurs, I'd say is the the concept of idea capture and generation is not so much a system as much as it is of just like like a kid playing with finger paint on the on the floor, right? Like there's no there's no structure to it. Here's paper. Here's paint. Uh, hopefully, we'll put some plastic down, and you know, don't eat it. Right. Like that's that's kind of what happens with a lot of entrepreneurs brains. And it's like, oh, green. Yes. OK, cool. Uh, but what we really need to do is put a system in place. And this is not complicated. So it's not, you know, software that has to be set up necessarily or anything like that. But a lot of times we'll ask people like, hey, do you have a system for capturing your ideas in, in, in like a, a group setting? And, you know, people will be like, oh, yeah. And they'll like hold up their moleskin notebook or, you know, like, yeah, I use Evernote or whatever. It's like, no, no, no. Do you have a system, right? Meaning like the idea gets captured, 
you look at it again later, maybe sort it later, and then actually put a system in place to execute upon the good ones. It's like, oh, no, no. You know, a lot of them just write in their notebooks and never go back to it again. And then they just think that they've got this gold mine of ideas that most of them are not. So you need to have that system. And you have to understand that we have different like neurological states, right? So the time that you come up with the idea, that idea generation, the idea capture, that is not the time to assess the idea, right? That needs to happen later. And it could be hours or days later. And then the time that you're assessing the idea, that's not the time to start working on it and executing it. That needs to be days or maybe even weeks later uh, because you need to put the right resources in place and also balance that with what else you might have going on in terms of your work. And when you do that and you slow people down just a little bit, and it, it doesn't have to be a lot, but just slow them down a little bit so that they can look at it with different mindsets. Not only do you sort out the bad ideas a lot better, but you have a much better chance of actually executing upon an idea that might really have an impact. And uh, what does that look like in, in real terms? Because the, the challenge there is is often that's the tension in an organization, that, that the innovation, you know, the organization gets to the point where it's able to stop the ideas coming in because it likes the status quo because it's got big enough. And, and you need that. How do we, how do we get, how do we get the idea? Five ideas. Which one are we going to work on? How do we allocate resources? How do you, how do you get people to solve that innovation dilemma? So here's the big secret of innovation, right? I, I would be willing to bet because if, I mean, I've seen it enough. It wouldn't be a fair bet because I'm right on this one. <laughs> um, <laughs> Most people, the vast majority of people that tell you that they don't have enough time, right? They actually have too much time and they don't know what to do with it. And the human brain doesn't do very well with that kind of a blank slate often. Innovation requires, in my opinion, requires restriction, right? And, and obviously you have the case of like, you know, cancer research, right? The, the more billions of dollars that we can put towards cancer research, the better, of course, right? Everyone would say that. But then you have people in a village in India who make a blood test out of cardboard and glass and an iPhone, right? That is more effective than a giant, giant machine. Now, and again, I'm not, the scientific community is, there's, I mean, I'm a believer in the scientific community, uh, but the, 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 my favorite example, right, is you take like MacGyver. MacGyver was, uh, he, I, he worked for some agency. It wasn't like the CIA or anything, but, but essentially he was, every show he was in these, putting these situations where, you know, it was life or death or somebody or whatever. And he had like three completely nondescript items and had to build a bomb, you know, or fix an airplane or, uh, you know, okay. that kind of thing. And it was like Apollo 13. Yeah, no, exactly. Exactly. Right. So it was a great, it was a great show. But my point that I always tell people is like, look, nobody ever said to MacGyver, like, Hey man, there is a home Depot across the street. Here's a shopping cart. Go get what you need. Come on back. And like, let's take care of this problem. It was always literally like, here is a paperclip and a box of pancake mix right now. You need to blow up that building. Right. And, and he would do it. And some of it, a lot of it, I think actually was based in real science. So it wasn't complete like fantasy. It was really cool. That idea that started my business and this whole concept, right? What would you do if you could only work an hour a day? That extreme restriction on time is what forces you 
to be innovative, right? It's what forces you to figure out a better, different way to do it. It's the same reason why they say that, you know, kids should not have a thousand different toys, right? They should have a handful that they can then figure out different things to do with. Um, and, you know, not, I'm not preaching because my kids, I'm on my son's gaming computer right now. They have iPads, they have all those things. But last night, my two eight-year-olds and my five-year-old we got, you know, three Amazon shipments and they started taking apart the boxes. One of them made a house. One made a, uh, I think it was a car wash and the other one made a hair salon, you know, and then, and that was it. And a lot of, a lot of funded companies have too much money. A lot of entrepreneurs who, you know, they're working a hundred hours a week. No, you're just spending a hundred hours a week at the office. You have a shitload of time. Um, you're just not using it effectively. Right. So we need to actually create more restrictions on our time and not only time, but, all sorts of things. So a, a great example for people to, to try, a really practical example, is see if you can operate entirely from your phone for a week. Don't touch a computer. And, and incidentally, the reason I'm in my son's bedroom right now is that I, I haven't touched my, I literally have not touched my laptop in nine months. So because obviously I want to have nice sound and camera for you, I'm on here with my son's computer. But everything that I do is from my phone. And when I initially tried that experiment eight years ago, it was really hard. There was a lot of things that I couldn't do from the phone because the apps didn't exist. The power wasn't there. The screen was too. But that's changed. And I figured out solutions and I was able to do it. And, and it might be a challenge for you, but it's a really interesting restriction because then if you can do everything from your phone, you can do work more effectively anywhere. And if you do get to a big computer with a big screen and a keyboard, you should be super productive at that point because now you've been working with essentially a weighted bat for the whole week. And what about uh interesting article I read this week talking about time and saying uh, that managers and creators see time differently, right? It seems to me that one of the things you're talking about there is the... Uh, you know, if if this thing that we do together, if if teamwork is valuable, and that that happens together as opposed to on our own, so synchronously, you know, actually getting people in a room is more powerful than individuals working on their own. Where does that fit in to your system? So people, not that they don't need it, but people should not be managed. People should be led. And unfortunately, management often serves as a substitute for leadership. And title and authority are completely uncorrelated, right? Because you can have somebody with no title who commands authority, and you can have people with very big titles that have absolutely no authority. The, the org chart versus the shadow org chart. Right. Uh, and management is a shitty proposition for all parties in it, right? Because what you're essentially saying is like, you're not capable of getting things done without me nagging you, right? And the manager is basically like, I have to nag these people or they're not going to get things done. So uh, in terms of like, now, leadership, right, is ultimately empowering people. And leadership is allowing people not only to make mistakes, but to learn from those mistakes and to elevate them ultimately. Um, and the idea of replaceability for me is that everybody in an organization should be as replaceable as possible so that they can be replaced up, not out. Um, so that idea that time is different is, uh, of course it is because 
management is not productive, right? There's nothing productive about management. If anything, management is sort of filling in the cracks of the unproductive, uh, the unproductivity, whatever that you might see in the people that you're managing. Um, so it's, uh, it, it's a very poor proposition. But when do you see the value in teams coming together, groups of humans creating together? Uh, so, so creating, yeah, a lot of businesses, a lot of companies don't really have that need necessarily, right? Like, yeah, I mean, I guess you could always make the argument that every company might have marketing needs that could have some collaboration to it. But, um, you know, if you have like a manufacturing company, for example, like that makes tools, yeah, there's definitely going to be some value in somebody being like, hey, I tried making this ratchet and it does this. And then the other person's like, oh, that's really cool. But like, what if it did this? And Yes, that kind of collaboration is really special, uh, but we need to actually have structure around that and create proper structure, meaning that we don't have meetings for the purpose of meetings. There needs to be a purpose of why people are coming together. It can't just be this idea that you're going to throw people in a, in a, in a, a pen, essentially, and sort of hope that something good comes out. Um, it really does that, that creative process. It needs to be directed. And in many cases, there needs to be those restrictions. Um, so one of the most famous companies for that would be IDEO, uh, which is a design thinking, I, I guess, yeah, design thinking firm, right? If you're, yeah. So yeah, yeah, they had a really, really interesting case study that they did where they had to design a better shopping cart, right, for for uh, uh, grocery stores. And so then they had parameters. You know, one was like it should be as theft-proof as possible. Right, it should be uh, as easy a maneuver as possible, and it should hold this. And should, so there are like four or five criteria that have to be met. Uh, and that, again, that's to me how you truly create that innovation by putting those restrictions. Because sure, as somebody kind of be like, oh yeah, I, you know, out of the box thinking, right? What if we add these, you know, special alloy wheels? Like, okay, yeah, that'd be cool. Maybe <laughs> it doesn't really serve the need that we're trying to solve right now. So um, again, th- it, there's value to it if it is structured properly. Okay. Is there anybody you look back with and you, you're disappointed because you thought you should have been able to help them and for some reason you couldn't? Uh, disappointed. Yeah, that's a hard one because I have to say personally, I think I've been very good about being selective about the clients that I work with. Uh, it's, I can spot an uncoachable person from about 16 miles away. That's, that's something that I've gotten very good at. Yeah. There have definitely been times where I've worked with someone and they've pushed back and which is fine. It can, that's, that's part of the process. But if I'm not able to get to the point where people identify it as a problem, that would prove very difficult. So I'm, I'm not, I'm not the interventionist type, right? So I'm not the one that's going to be like, hey, you have a problem with this. And they say, no, I don't. And I say, no, you do. And let me show you why. No, I deal with the people who are like, I'm overwhelmed. My my brother just had a heart attack and he's two years older than me. Uh, I never talked to my, you know, like I, I need help. Those, those are the people that I end up working with. Uh, now, still, we get those people who won't quite follow the advice that is right in front of them. They won't see it. So they won't see it clearly enough to do it. Uh, and fortunately, in many of those cases, I've been able to sort of pivot and work with their COOs instead. Um, so I, I do a lot of coaching where I work with CEOs and or entrepreneurs and COOs. So ops people and visionaries, which is very, very different kind of work. Yeah. So ultimately, I can get the result I want. 
But uh, in the beginning, for sure, when I was learning coaching, which you know, I don't have a coaching certification, uh, the actually is a sort of very quick, funny story for you to put a little package on that. 11 years ago, I was teaching classes on my system, which I was just kind of doing for fun. And it, it became quite popular in New York uh, in this particular educational community. And uh, after one of my classes, I taught like maybe seven, six, seven, eight classes. It wasn't a lot, but they were, they were good. And people, you know, like 20, 30 people were coming to each class. And at the end of one class, this guy came up to me and he's like, hey, yeah, that was really great. He's like, do you do private coaching? And I was like, yeah, I do. Uh, and it's this much money. <laughs> And uh, we'll meet, you know, we'll meet an hour once a week and uh, email access between. Sound good? Um, I think I can add you to my client load. Um, and he said, yes. And then, uh, and then I had to figure out how to be a coach. <laughs> and, so, um, and now, you know, I've done I don't know, thousands of hours of coaching with hundreds of different people. Uh, but I learned along the way. So uh, definitely there were some disappointments along the way there, but a lot of that was more me than them. And so what are the... I mean, other than realizing you've got a problem and a commitment to doing the work, what what are the other things that you see as symptoms of coachability? Well, so the whole idea of replaceability is a real punch to the ego for a lot of people, because if you know, well, if I could be replaced, well, then you know, what do my what's my value? What's my worth? Right? Like, if I'm not the one here burning the midnight oil, you know, then who's going to do that? And they're going to think that I'm not, you know, really working. And then what does that mean? Um, so there's a lot of ego stuff that comes into that uh, for sure. And if, look, feedback is an incredible tool, right? And I, and I can say personally, I, I was really bad at accepting uh, feedback for a very, very long time uh, in my younger years for some very, clear rooted psychological background issues on that. Uh, and I've fortunately come to embrace feedback and criticism. And if you can't receive it, it's very hard to give it. This is, which is part of it too. So you have people who will take feedback and they'll, sometimes they'll outright just push back and like, yeah, no, I, I think this way is better. And if you can have a conversation about that, that's fine. But most of the times in that situation, you can't. Uh, and the other one is where people are like, oh, yeah, yeah, sure. Absolutely. Yeah, totally. I mean, yeah. And then you know that they're not really taking it. Right? See that all the time, too. And then you see the deflectors. Right. So the deflectors are the ones that deflect by focusing on all the things that they think that they're doing right. You know, all of the, uh, the big clients that they have and all the money that they're making and all the people that are working for them and love them. All these people love me, you know, and they're just totally fooling themselves. Um, so, so those people are, are, I would say very uncoachable and being on being coachable, in my opinion, is one of the most important skills that we can develop as, as humans, as parents, as everything. Okay. And, um, what is it, Ari, that you know now that you wish you'd known earlier? Start therapy younger. <laughs> Uh, you know, it's taking my own advice in many ways uh, that I give people, but that's the thing I said before about you can't read the label from inside the jar, right? And there, uh, I got a very late start, I would say, relatively speaking, in life in terms of becoming the man that I feel that I am today, the husband, the father, the friend. 
do you do you look back and are glad that you got Crohn's? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Because, well, for for two main reasons. One is that I think that everybody in that kind of situation, meaning a situation a situation of overwhelm, no matter what it is, you know, somebody who's working a job and doesn't have the money, working uh, with family, like all those things. Anybody who's in that situation of overwhelm, at some point, they will have an awakening, right? And it and it sometimes could be really dire. It could be something that somebody dies, right? Somebody gets uh, an illness that is not treatable. Uh, somebody gets fired and, you know, whatever it might be. There's uh, the awakening is coming. And for some people, it could be very minor and some people would be very severe. That's what I'm saying. And I would say that. In absolute terms, I think Crohn's is a pretty bad one because it's considered to be an incurable disease. But uh, I was able to overcome it and help a lot of other people overcome it as well. So, yes. Yeah, so on the one hand, yes, I'm glad it was Crohn's and not, you know, my wife getting hit by a car. Like that's, I'm very happy for that. And then the other thing, <laughs> not as happy is, as her. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, and then the other reason that I am, I'm glad about it is just because. You know, looking back, I, I'm not, I wasn't happy with the person that I was at the time. Um, and a lot of that was because, and I, granted, I was 23 when I got diagnosed. So, I, you know, in a lot of ways, I was still a kid. But I, I think that I, there was a part of me that felt like I knew everything. I knew how to do things the right way. And my way was the right way. And I wasn't open to feedback. I wasn't open to outside criticism. I wasn't really open to growth. Um, and without that incident i don't i don't think i would have been able to have that shift okay any books you've picked up along the way that that have helped helped you or you think listeners would be interested in or maybe even you advise those people you're coaching to pick up and read yeah uh, my my favorite my favorite book i'd say of all time pretty much and the one that was most valuable i think in that journey too it was a book called emergency by neil strauss um, so Neil, most people, you know, know him, he wrote the game. Um, he's a really good, great writer. Um, and emergency is a true story. It's his true story about essentially after nine 11, he kind of had like a freak out about the world ending and decided to get a second citizenship in case like he needed to kind of bug out basically. But along the way, the story is really all the skills that he kind of picked up along the way to become more self-sufficient and self-reliant, all these kinds of things. So he learned survivor techniques and he learned hand-to-hand combat and he became a uh, an EMT and a pilot and all these kinds of things. And many of those things I had actually already done. Um, I've had my pilot since I was 15. Um, I, I am an EMT and I have been for 10 years really actively. Uh, and so it was sort of this idea of not only bettering yourself responding to a situation with resourcefulness, but also that idea of sort of self-reliance and self-sufficient and growth and constant growth. Um, so it's, 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 and it's just really well written. He's awesome. So that, that book is really key. Okay. What else, what else you got on your. For, for books. Yeah. Well, Oh, what are, what are all of yours? We should list. How many have you written now? Uh, I think there's 12. Um, maybe in that case, we won't do all yeah. 12. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> given, the, given the context of this conversation, what's the, what are the top two or three? The top, I'd say the most, the most recent two would be on productivity, which is sort of my, yeah. I don't, I, I'm, 
never say never, but I, I don't plan on writing another productivity book. That was supposed to be <laughs> that was supposed to be the end. Uh, so on productivity, and then before that was um, the replaceable founder, which is the uh, the one that we've, we've talked about, and then my original book, which is less doing, more living, uh, which came out I think in 2014 now. Um, so those 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 three would be the recommendations. Fantastic. Ari, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on. Thank you for giving us your time today. Thank you for the great conversation. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. If you'd be kind enough to leave a review, it will really help other like-minded entrepreneurs find this podcast and grow our community. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find some cracking show notes, additional reading and links relating to our guest. There you can also find my blog and past episodes of my subjectively not crap newsletter, where I'll update you on the best articles I read that week, some recommended books and other podcasts. Thanks, and I will see you next week. 